Welcome to Pem Pem Pal and our continued coverage of Darling in the Franks. This is episode 11, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. episode 11. Uh, this is Alex. And this is Brian. And hey, this is Ben. And we are really excited to have our first time guest this week, Emily. Yay. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Did I butcher that? You did. It's. Okay, cool. Um, Brian, can you tell uh, our audience why we brought Emily on? Uh, so we're covering Darling in the Franks, uh, which deals with a lot of sexual topics. And uh, the anime community is not really known for being able to have mature discussions about sexual issues. And we felt like we could really use some people that had mature perspectives and we could have a really great informed conversation. This particular issue deals with different couple arrangements. Uh, and I think we'll have a pretty good conversation about like polyamory and open relationships. Are those the same thing? Are they different? Are those things okay? Why or why not? Uh, and I think it'll be a pretty good conversation. Okay, great. Do you, do you have strong opinions on polyamory and uh, open communication about Romantic relationships, Emily? My yes, I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, is there an elevator pitch or uh, something we should just get into in the episode? Um, I could try an elevator pitch, which is basically you can't have a relationship if you don't communicate with each other. Mm. And then it's like a million times more so if you have multiple relationships, which is fun and awesome. Awesome. Right. Okay. Strong. This is going to be fun. All right. <laughs> So uh, do you have any experience with the show before this or anime in general? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not really an anime person. I've had lots of friends who are into it and they'll, you know, suggest trying to watch it. And I've never really gotten into it. Um, I'd never heard of this show before you all um, invited me to join you and watch, watch it with you. So um, all pretty new. Uh, cool. There were certainly, I think, some getting used to like different storytelling <laughs> devices. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot of tropes that if you're not already like desensitized to them, you're like, oh, this is horrible. And you're like, yep, it is horrible. <laughs> I mean, this show in particular has a lot of stuff where you just something happens and they just like roll with it as if it's normal. And the watcher just kind of like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, a strange introduction to anime, yeah. I think. So a little background for Emily, uh, hopefully to make us all more comfortable. Um, I didn't really know Ben before I joined the podcast. So, you know, we're still getting to know each other. And this is Ben's first time through the show as well. Uh, so Alex, this is Alex's second time through the show. And uh, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 times for me. Whoa. Uh, so. Wait, 15 times through this show, through Darling in the Franks? Yeah. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I was going to say, I have a little bit of a confession. Um, so no longer in the airport. So there will be no airport inter <laughs> interruptions yes. this episode. But while I was sitting in the airport last week and I had a bunch of time to kill, I did uh, start watching ahead. Oh, no. Oh, how far? What? So I, haven't, I haven't finished the series, but I think I, I haven't finished the series. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got up to 15 or something like that. 
Okay. <laughs> That's cool. Okay. So Emily, you're up to date on this episode and uh, we will not do any spoilers in case you had any interest in finishing <laughs> out the series. Um, okay. Cool. My confession is I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Did I give the news about Darling and the Franks's collected release yet? No. Uh, they're finally releasing the the collected edition. Is it Anaplex? Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what the holdup was, but <sighs> big news for some people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, prior to that, you could get like a partial collection of the series, or you could. I don't know why Japan does this. They'll release like four episodes at a time, which I thought that was just like a '90s thing. Like I remember shows coming out on like four ish uh, four episodes at a time. But it's like $80 for four episodes of a show. Like if, if you're listening and like that's how you roll, please comment and uh share what, what the appeal is of, of that. And I won't judge you. I'm just fascinated. Cool. It's probably like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, and they don't care. <laughs> you think they listen to our podcast? Yeah, man. Yeah. Because we talk about them, we say shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is Alex saying about me? Yeah. Well, doesn't every podcast say negative stuff about those two? I hope so. Yeah. All right. Time for the episode. <laughs> <Great>. Thank you. <laughs> Last time on Rewarding Child Soldiers, Mistletane Edition. Our squad declaxed another battlefield, and Zora may finish the fight by hitting the core a little too close, causing Argentia to be covered in sweet, sweet blue monster blood. Papa and the Lamarck Club decided to honor the pilots with an unusual, perfunctory, and ultimately immaterial award ceremony. Even Zorame, being the most indoctrinated and excited about their Babe 2 pig in the city moment, was also the most disappointed in the contactless ritual. Miku and Kokoro offered a chance for team bonding by taking a leisurely stroll back to Mistletane, a course of action that Nana begrudgingly acquiesced to, and Zorame gleefully abandoned. After excitement and gravity gave Zorame's face a close-up encounter with a pipe, he woke to the most intimate encounter and conversation of his life. An adult with suspiciously colored eyes treated Zorame's wounds, fed him inedible-looking colored spheres, and introduced him to her psychotically smiling partner. This possum mom revealed that adults used to pair for a reason, but whatever that was has long since been forgotten. After an anticlimactic, emotional non-breakthrough, the increasingly fatigued adult sent Zorame back to Mistletane without so much as a handshake. The gang was happy to see him unharmed, but Miku demanded Zorame clean the bathhouse as a fitting punishment for his truancy and the klaxo mess he caused at the beginning. Alone and ruminating, an increasingly despondent Zero Two eyed her fangs in Naomi's mirror. Will the parasites keep exploring long dormant human connections? Might another in our group break from convention to pursue their earnest desires? Can the bullshit heteronormative standard be bent or even broken? Let's find out. So three, two, one, play. Well, we're gonna head down. Man, I'm starving. If you place your hopes in anything, they will be betrayed. Promises will go unfulfilled and faith will be let down. Due to all of your efforts, the S-planning occurring in this area has been proceeding quite smoothly. That said, you need to improve your kill count, codes 326 and 196. Your parasite score is dropping too. You know, Hachi's kind of a jerk. Like, their kill count is, like, way above average now. And then, like, Mitsuru, like, dropping below, puts him about average with, like, any other squad. It's like all this shit about, like, well, you're fucking lame, we're gonna cut you. They're modeling 
traditional um, tyrannical no, heteronormative parent thinking, roles right like he is the authoritarian the father they don't see him as much so, he's not the caretaker uh, do you think you could maybe promise to be my partner for the rest of forever <laughs> of course i promise so then is there anyone who wants to try riding with a different partner i would like to attempt a pistol to pistol connection anyone else I'd like to try riding with Mitsuru. Uh, but, Kokoro, what about our promise? I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive Hiro, but I do know that these kinds of things will surely continue to happen between all of us. When I woke up the next morning, my temperature was back to normal. Temperature's back to normal, but he does not stop having the dream. Or at least he doesn't say so. Hmm. Whereas Zorame was like, I never had that dream again in his outro narration. Maybe we don't get everything we want. Right. All right. So made some new notes here. Excited to hear them. I think I actually have to change my mind about what this whole thing is about. Oh, this episode or the mm-hmm. whole series? No, this episode. Or just like life. so where do we start this is what's the name of this episode partner shuffle okay awesome idea we're getting a lot of exceptions right we're getting that oh again and again in every episode that this this frank squad is the exception not the rule uh and so they got to go to the city and now they're being allowed you know they're they've had this mention to nana like we're going to do this thing that other frank squads do not get to do like you get the choice of pairing up together if you want to exercise that choice but anyways we'll get there so this time it's mitsuru's dream we start with right zorame last time mitsuru this time and again it's this childhood trauma right mm-hmm that he just can't get over, uh, that he has this relationship with Hero when they're still at the garden, I guess. All right, so I'm going to get real here for a second. Get real. I might have a hard time getting through this episode without trying. <laughs> okay. Uh, I feel like this episode kind of hits on some real hard stuff. Uh, I yeah. appreciate that we start with this childhood memory, this flashback thing. I've had a lot of conversations with folks who, uh, you know, at some point in their life, rethink their gender identity, sexual identity, their expression of sexuality. And there's just a lot of stories of things that happened in early childhood that kind of set them back, like some form of shaming or a hurt mm-hmm. that occurred. Uh, you know, and so we get to see Mitsuru, and he likes Hiro. Uh, however you want to frame that, there's an affection or an affinity there. And... Like, we know what happens because we just watched the episode. Like, uh, it doesn't work out. And he just has this, can't trust anybody. Don't open up with anybody. Don't be real. Uh, Just suppress. Hope is bullshit. Promises, faith. uh, It only leads to hurt. Yeah. I've said all of these things to myself in my head. Uh, Pretty dark stuff. Yeah. I blame the culture. (laughs) I'm pissed Mm -hmm. off. Uh, It (laughs) doesn't have to be this way. It shouldn't be this way. But it is. And now I feel like the Klaxosaur, like we've had different beasts, like symbolize different things, like about sexuality. It changed the way I feel this. Like, I think they're fighting the culture. I think that's what this thing is. Oh, it's this big 
flat square with legs. I'm like, they're fighting a table. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't get that. But then it like it grows and it has these tendrils and it like has babies. Uh, it's just this hard thing to contain that just keeps stretching out. And like the conversations that happen during this show, it's a lot about like promises and forever relationships. And it's like, oh, they, they're talking about marriage. And like, like, is this thing like the, 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 the bride and groom table, you know, like that's the only thing I can think of, like that's table like in this narrative, but I don't know. Maybe this thing is just meant to be really open to interpretation. Yeah. Cause I first thought the thing looked like a fucking bear. So I did research on what bears mean in Japanese culture, <laughs> which is now like not relevant at all to our conversation. Oh, like when we, when we need some levity, I can talk about bears. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I, I guess maybe in support of your thing of it being society or something. I mean, it is this kind of Leviathan like creature where it's mm. a giant creature composed of a bunch of individual creatures, right? Which is kind of like this old image for kind of the, you know, the way everyone's individual actions can end up having these emergent properties and, you know, creating nation states or, or whatever. Right, absolutely. And the ability of it, of individual little Klaxosaurs to come off of it and act autonomously, but for their true like power to be together, that they like stitch up their own wounds. Uh, yeah, it's that collaborative effort. But I do not want to be like Hachi. I don't, I don't want to dictate to everyone what I think this is about and what, what we have to talk about. So whatever you got out of this show, you know, let's whatever you think it's about. That's cool. We'll hear it. Uh, yeah. Did anybody have any like emergent themes that stuck out to them? I mean, I kind of did. I sort of, I kept noticing that all of the characters refuse to talk to each other about what they need. And as a result, they put their partners in danger. So like zero two is like, I don't know. I don't like her as a character. Like I'll just be on, I hate her as a character. Like from the first episode, I was like, ugh. But so she's having her thing and Hero's like, what's going on? Like, <laughs> and she's just like, I don't want to talk to you about it. Let's just fuck each other about it instead. Mm -hmm. And then she's like having some kind of meltdown and putting him in danger. Cause she's like, leave me alone. I can do what I want, you know? And then later on, like when Mitsuru is, um, you know, he's just like, I don't want to do this. And so Kokoro is like, okay, well then I'll do it on my own. And like, he's not talking to her about what he needs. And so she's like putting herself in a lot of danger to like overcome like his not participating in their partnership. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and it's like, if you just talk about what you need, like you can move past these things and you're not putting each other in danger. And that was frustrating to see over and over again in this episode. Mm -hmm. We are hitting the ground running. So I have to <laughs> ask the question, like it's, this is everybody, right? Why is it hard? I think it's because well, there's I mean, this leap of faith aspect. Sorry, Ben, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, also we have the kind of Futoshi's arc in this thing, right? Which is that when you express yourself and, and what you want, you can uh, set yourself up for heartbreak, right? And that's kind of, I think, a lot of people's fear. And it'll be interesting to see him going forward and if this gives him some some baggage for later in the, in the series. Yeah, I guess, you know, both of the characters who are honest about what they want at some point then don't get that thing that they mm -hmm. want and that causes them a lot of pain for me i thought this was very indicative of like how childlike they are 
you know, like, mm-hmm. this, like I had a crush on someone and they weren't into it and now I'll never love again. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, and you're saying the other one is Mitsuru with his experience with Hiro. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, Futoshi, like, I love you forever. And she's like, cool, I guess. Like, <laughs> um, and then when she's not into it, then he's like, ah, I'll never love again. Like, yeah, I, I was a little bit bothered by, I kind of feel like they should have put this promise that. Futoshi and that Kokoro makes to Futoshi like a little bit earlier in the series. Like it just felt like 10 seconds after she makes this promise, she violates it. And like, if they had just put this scene in like an episode or two earlier, that that would have felt more like organic or something like that. Yeah. That's probably a good note. A little bit of distance between the two events. Yeah. Where it's still like fresh in your mind, but there's a little bit more of like, you know, Kokoro flirting with, Mitsuru or like her one-sided flirting that she <laughs> does in the garden. Yeah. Well, and but. and and Kokoro is doing the same thing, right? Like she's uh advocating for what she wants, which is awesome, but she's also not communicating ahead of time, right? Yeah. I sort of thought that was interesting when the uh, Nana is like go talk to your partner about whether like a shuffle is what you want to do. They all go talk to their partners and never once actually talk about whether they want to shuffle. And so it is a complete surprise when they come back into the room and two of them are like, yeah, me. And like, no one's ever talked about it. And so (laughs) they just are like, everyone's shocked by what happens. And it also felt a little weird because I mean, something that I have disliked about the series is nothing in it is consensual. And even when Mm -hmm. it has the opportunity to be consensual, it isn't. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, they, they have the chance to talk about whether shuffling is something they want. Nobody does. So when people do it, they're like, Oh, I guess I like don't have a choice in the matter. Like this is just how our relationship is proceeding now. Yeah, no, you're right on. Like there, there is a dearth of consent really specifically like consensual touch and those uh, those moments where we do have those things, they're they're like really highlighted. Like um, at the end of the Goro episode, when he's like he confesses to uh, Ichigo, and then he says like like they hug each other, and then he's like, "Can we stay like this for a little while?" And that was like a good uh, uh, keeping contact moment or keeping communication moment where they both said, yes, this is something we're both willing to do. And it feels good for both of us for whatever reason. So yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. Cause that is, uh, another emergent theme in the series. Like there is the, dir- this dearth of stuff and like, where does that come from? Um, and it is very uncomfortable to witness. I'm totally with you. Uh, let me comment on that. So when hero confronts, uh, zero two, like, this is on the theme of communication. Uh, she shuts him down and she says, like, we can understand each other just fine when we're piloting. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, is that how we are? Like, do we lean on these things, the routines of cohabitation or our sex life? Like, that's good enough. We don't have to talk and use our words. We don't have to be open and share our feelings. Like, you should just know what I'm thinking or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can say for myself, like I've stayed in relationships where I was like, the sex is fine. And even if it sucks to talk to this person or they're not like letting me into what's going on with them uh, in their brains, like, well, you know, we, we understand each other just fine when we're naked and that's good enough, mm-hmm. but there, it's not good enough. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Zero two just wants a forever fuck buddy, right? Like it's like a, 
yeah, like we don't need to worry about this other stuff. But then it's weird because she's like, but forever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's Not what Darling like a... translates to in Klaxosaur. <laughs> Man, that scene that you just referenced, like the ominous music. And when her arms go around him, it doesn't look like a crest. It looks like threatening, like the way that this monster like reached its tendrils out. And then it just, I got to thinking about like the monoculture, like the marriage theme. And I was just like, oh God, it's this specter. Like she's like, till death do us part. Until we die, my darling. We are going to make a forever promise as kids when we're not even done discovering ourselves and growing. <laughs> and then we're going to die together. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. I feel like they're stuck in this forever thing they did when they were too young. Yeah. I don't know about uh, other uh, religious wedding ceremonies, but like most Christian ceremonies have that line till death do us part. Everyone's like, it's at the end of the wedding. Everyone's exhausted. They just want to get to the party. But like, they do say that. And it is fucking grim. <laughs> One more thing. And then we can get back to the, the outline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about like all these communication themes, I guess now. Like, uh, you know, Futoshi always seemed like just expressing himself just came so easily to him. But he's he's an immature kid. Like, he can't read people. He can't tell that Kokoro's just being nice. He can't tell that that's not reciprocation. And then like he starts to go down this path of Mitsuru. It's not explicit. It's subtle, I think. Uh, you know, they get into the Franks and he turns the video things off. It's audio only and he's crying. Uh, and then the next scene, he's composed himself and the videos back on. Just to me felt like, oh, that's it. That's the ever present feeling to like withdraw and cut off and put up walls. Yeah, Futoshi is real complicated and uh, it is exciting to see more of him in this episode and maybe a little disappointing that he's still kind of a caricature, right? He's still eating in the back of every scene and when he's not eating, he is feeling everything to the nth degree to the point where he doesn't recognize the emotions of the person in front of him, right? It's, it's interesting. There is a lot of stuff in this episode with... Um the communications and turning stuff off and on, right? So at the beginning of the episode, we have Futoshi's, you know, confessing his love to Kokoro and the promise. And then it turns out that everyone knows about that. Then we have this thing of him crying and him shutting it off. And then we have the moment that Kokoro shuts off the communication to like allow some intimacy between her and Mitsuru and for them to kind of like talk through this, this dark secret. And, um, you know, one of the things that makes relationships so hard when you're young is like you're in school and there's this feeling that everything is kind of like public. Like if you get um, rejected or dumped or something like that, like everyone's going to know about it. Whereas then when you're like an adult, you can kind of, I don't know, the, you don't have to worry as much about that extra layer. Like maybe your, your friends will know, but um at least if you live in a fairly large anonymous city, it, it's um, you have a lot more privacy when it when it comes to to that kind of stuff than you do in a, a school setting. I hated school. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I also liked that moment that you pointed out, the one where Kokoro turns off the communications and then the weird dad figure 
was like, Hachi. I wonder what they're thinking. <laughs> like, wow, I bet everyone is. Because <laughs> no one's talking about it. <laughs> so I, I have one little uh, trivial thing. Just reading the screens when we come back to the, uh, the show after the opening credits. I had to do the math. Uh, they've been at Plantation 13 as Squad 13 for 168 days. That's where we are as of episode 11 from episode one. I made a joke about it in the notes. Uh, Hachi and Nana are analyzing the data and they're like, yep, horny teenagers. That's the way to go. 25 kills in one day. Uh, whatever this. Well, I think, I think they missed the point. Yeah. 25 kills in one day, 90 total kills. Sorry to cut you off, Brian. Okay. But like, isn't it not that they're horny teenagers? Isn't it the individuality that makes the difference? Mm -hmm. Like the connections they're making as tenuous as they are, they end up being stronger on the battlefield and whatever metaphor we want to use for that, like then the standardized one. So like conformity breeds consistency, but people don't find their best way of doing things when they have no room to experiment. And as as strict as these kids are, we know that every other Frank squad is, you know, at least. 20, 30% more strict. Like they don't get anything. They don't even get different hair colors. <laughs> like that's a human rights violation. All right. Uh, we have no idea what S planning is. It looks like it's right. some sort of mining thing, but they never address it. Uh, then we get to our first forever promise. Futoshi asking Kokoro. The shoehorned in thing. Yeah. Mitsuru has child fever. Uh, he's had it before for the first time at the age of nine. Uh, it's not supposed to happen again. The treatment is potentially fatal. Uh, mm. Only 15% of people survive. So we got this injection of this thing. We get this little bit of lore. There's this thing they give to some children called elixir. Mm -hmm. Did the injection happen before the child fever or after the child fever? Was the injection the response to the child fever? Well, this is a little spoilery, but it doesn't actually matter in terms of the story or character development. Okay. Mitsuru got sick and he was going to have this procedure the elixir injection at the age of nine. My, my thought about this whole thing is like, uh, this is something happening to Mitsuru in early childhood. Uh, the stuff that happens to us in early childhood is tends to be what informs our subconscious thought processes, like what we think and feel and how I behave on autopilot. And that's probably where these convictions come from that Mitsuru has. It wasn't just that he felt rejected by hero. It was a... Pretty traumatic time in his life, I guess. Oh, yeah. He asks Hero uh, for the promise before he goes to get the elixir, right? He's like, if I survive this, will you pilot with me? And they do a little subtle thing where you see Hero's mouth move, but you don't get the actual answer. So you're like, oh, it must have been like, that's impossible. Or what are you talking about, Mitsuru? But then doesn't it end up at the end of the episode? We see it at the, the second time we see the dream, right? So yeah, he wakes up from the dream and like, I feel like this is a thing that they love in this show. It's like a, a large part of the dramatic tension is someone's like about to say something and then like an alarm goes off or someone interrupts them. I mean, like this is in a lot of TV writing and, and movies and stuff like that. But, you know, I think we counted up how many times it happened in the beach episode. And this is another <laughs> one where there's probably like four or five times it happens just just in this episode. Yeah. So a lot of our backstory comes through Goro telling the rest of the squad who wasn't with them when they were little kids. Whatever happened, it resulted in Mitsuru having like a personality change. 
he was once this lighthearted kid that would follow Hiro around like a puppy. And then, according to Goro, just... But it couldn't have started too long before he took the injection. He associates it with, like, the fever and the injection, and that he was a totally different person afterwards, and so was Hiro. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the first time we've seen this. Like, Kokoro sort of has this empathetic response to hearing about Mitsuru and what he went through. It must have been scary, you know, only a 15% uh, survival rate. So we go from this to another nightmare scene. And again, it's more guilt and shame over Mitsuru, his feelings towards Hiro. Uh, And there's this bouncing ball thing. It happened in the cold open. It happened here. Now it happens again later. It's just this infinitely bouncing ball that only hits like the pure white squares. Oh, I saw that and I was like, uh, this feels like it's unresolved. The unresolved thing makes a lot of sense, but there's also the pure white squares is like, you know, everything's this way. You can't deviate from this. You know, Mm -hmm. every time there's a connection, a hit, it's never off color. Yeah. Mm. Which for the subject matter of the episode is like a really depressing concept and one that should be like, you know, fought against. I I feel like the clue we get to that image is that, you know, at the end, we see that ball finally bouncing off screen, mm-hmm. right? So kind of that that thing is is over. And, and that's when uh, Mitsuru is talking about how, you know, he doesn't forgive Hiro, but he's kind of acknowledging that this is a part of life, that these kind of betrayals happen happen between people and that, that he has to accept that. Or, or that's kind of how I interpreted his little speech at the end. But I saw that as, as him kind of letting go of this kind of perseveration about this betrayal. Hmm. So again, I don't know if I'm reading too much into the imagery. <laughs> the ball avoids all the blue squares. And then our monster of this episode has this like giant fucking blue square. And instead of like the, something that's being avoided in the nightmare, it's something they have to confront. Yeah, I like that. That sounds clever. All right, then I'm going to go with it. Cool. <laughs> that's my thought on this. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so... That's when we get this this increasingly troubling interaction because they've been going downhill since episode six, kind of. Well, I guess seven. Anyways, um, so Zero Two and Hero have a moment and he's like, hey, you know, I told you to tell me what's wrong with you, right? Which he's still trying to be open, but it's a real shame that he doesn't know any more complex tactics because he's stuck in like uh, imploring someone to open up to him, which like is something telling someone that you're available is something. But if like the uh, troubling behavior does not uh, cease, then like it it can be really helpful to have a couple extra tactics under your belt. Like he could use like something I learned about recently is mirroring. So like he could say like, hey, I'm feeling unsure about our relationship or I'm feeling unsure about, you know, my relationship with my friends since you came on because it's just shook up all the dynamics and like invite the other person to give them your opinion instead of just saying like, Hey, I told you to do this. Remember that? (laughs) Yeah. I remember my feelings haven't changed. So fuck off. I mean, there's something really familiar about this hero. I guess he's got a good intent. He's just very rudimentary about how he wants to connect, but he's chasing. And sometimes people don't want to be chased, you know, and being chased makes the other person retreat more. And I just don't think he's mature enough to see it. Mm. Well, yeah, the whole dynamic is so weird where he's like, I need to like 
I, I want to get to know you better. And the only way I know how to do that is for you is to demand for you to like, tell me what's going on. And she doesn't want to do that, <laughs> but she doesn't want to like resolve whatever like thing is happening with her either. And then, so like, he's like coming towards her, she's pushing away, but then she's also pulling in on like, we're going to be together until we die. And it's just, it's this like weird push pull that makes me very uncomfortable. Well, speaking of a push-pull dynamic, yeah. While uh, Mitsuru is watching, which is interesting, he's very focused on Zero Two and Hero's exchange. Like Ikunu engages him, and there's this sort of push-pull between them too. Like Ikuno knows what's going on with Mitsuru. Like if we can extrapolate that, like when people pilot and connect, they're sort of in each other's heads. It's 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 interesting. Like she cares about Mitsuru. But not the way Futoshi cares about Kokoro. Mm-mm. It's not about attraction or like affection. She wants him to like be real, <laughs> take off the mask. Well, I think they just see, you know, they have to spend this time together. And so I think they are acting as mirrors for one another. Ikuno is seeing like, you want something that you can't have. And I want something I can't have. And maybe by encouraging you, Maybe that'll make me feel better. So, so I think by this point, right, it's like pretty obvious that Ikuno is supposed to read as as gay, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then like, so similarly, because Mitsuru wants to pilot or wanted to pilot with Hiro, are we supposed to kind of assume that he's gay or bi or something like that? I think so. And, and so maybe it's kind of like in some ways they are going through this thing together that they can understand about each other or see about each other probably sooner than than the rest of these pilots who are kind of you know this is this world where like no one knows anything about romance or sexuality or anything like that right and kind of like this pistol stamen thing has just been the the rules mm-hmm. of, of how it worked right so you can imagine that um, the other people just might not even have considered this before or something like that. But I thought it was interesting that it doesn't work, you know, that when with the two women, it doesn't work. And, you know, it's clearly because the other woman is not gay and she's not into it. And then I think this is another thing that I've sort of been bothered is like it appears to basically always work, even though Ikuno is gay. She's being forced to have this heterosexual partnership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's like definitely not into it, but like able to pilot the thing anyways. And it's like, I don't know. I found that to be bothersome. Like, I don't think it's necessarily like a one to one. Like it is just pure sexuality. I don't know. I think it's kind of like an ambiguous, loose metaphor that's like more like partnership or something yeah. i don't know intimacy I, 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 at least at this point i don't think we know we also know it can be like people can drive it themselves on like anger like yeah, yeah. So, so i don't think they're trying to explicitly like make some commentary like that maybe i'm giving them too much benefit of the doubt i don't know well i can trust but, that but i have to be careful because i don't want to spoil anything maybe my perspective on uh Ikuno and Mitsuru is unique. I've always kind of felt like it was a sibling kind of tension that they had, which is a type of connection. Uh, So I kind of felt like maybe on those grounds it worked. And I'll only say I have reason to believe um, that it's not specifically because Ikuno and Ichigo 
were both female, uh, that the connection didn't work. Well, I, so I don't remember if we've talked about this before, but I think we have, uh, that Ikuno makes it work. Maybe this hasn't come up. Okay. It's so important to this discussion. Okay. Okay. Let me just make this one point. So Ikuno can only pilot with Mitsuru because she is thinking of Ichigo. That's right. So she gets into it by kind of pretending because she doesn't have to look at Mitsuru in the eye. She can look the other way and she can kind of pretend and think about Ichigo. And when they try the pistol to pistol connection, Ikuno takes the wrong position because Ichigo in the pistol position, the standard pistol position, is not thinking about Ikuno or thinking about Goro or Hiro to try to make it work. Because that's not in her head. She's just like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll try this with you. If it's important to you, we're friends. And I think that's a specific choice. They couldn't just let it work, uh, the writers, because it. we had to keep up this tension. We had to keep up this stuff. And so I totally agree with you. It sucks that they're like, oh, let's see two women try it together or two girls try it together. And it doesn't work. Is that like a slap in the face? But I, th- I think it goes deeper than that. And maybe that's a problem with it, that it's not surface level enough. So it doesn't read, it can read as a condemnation of homosexuality, essentially. We, we do have Ikuno afterwards. She, she kind of comments on that, right? She says something like, oh, I know what you think. Like, of course it didn't work because it was like two pistols or, or something like that. But you can tell that she still believes it's a thing that yes. that can work. Absolutely. So Ichigo, she says it. She says, I knew it wouldn't work pistol to pistol. It was a good idea you had, but I knew it wouldn't work without a boy. But she's wrong. Yeah, that was just very interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. That's my favorite part of this episode. But Mitsuru and Kokoro are able to make it work because Kokoro is into Mitsuru. Yeah, so they are in the corridor, Mitsuru and Ikuno. And this is, I can't, I don't know if I can blame the show for my disappointment. You know, I just want to see everyone win and grow. Like, man, like Mitsuru, he needed to show some support or affirm Ikuno. He knew that that meant a lot to her. And maybe he just didn't have it to give. Maybe he's just too focused on himself. That scene bothered me. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a lot of in a lot of uh, people's exploration of themselves, whether it's emotionally, identity, sexuality, we. Oh, no, I lost it. I'm so sorry. Damn ADD. <laughs> <laughs> well, where, where I wondered if you're going to go, you know, some, this is just me free associating on what you started to say, but, but there's this idea of like kind of reaction formation that one of the psychological defenses against something that you're trying to repress is to like um, be very against it in others. So this is sometimes the explanation you see for these kind of like anti-gay pastors that then comes out that they're having, um, you know, these gay affairs or whatever that, um, you know, maybe if Ikuno is gay and is kind of in denial about that, that, you know, he sees Mitsuru doing this thing and, um, wants to be like negative about it or or something like that i don't know you mean the other way mitsuru sees Ikuno uh, sorry it? yeah yeah um oh and you did remind oh no there it is again i'm so sorry <laughs> to briefly reminded you uh oh okay so when people are exploring sometimes they need uh, oftentimes they need a catalyst they need an excuse and this was ikuno's one excuse and the mm. chance may never come again in their lifetimes mm. yeah that is really sad 
All right, listeners, we need to create our own occasions, opportunities to discover and explore. Put that in your notes. Good advice. Yeah. So let's leap ahead a little bit. Futoshi is devastated, uh, but we're going to leap ahead a little bit to the greenhouse where Kokoro is cradling this doll, kind of role-playing a mother. Mm -hmm. And I do love the the choreography of the shot when Mitsuru comes in, like is startled and tosses the doll up into the air and then scrambles, but but doesn't drop. (laughs) And I just love the little moment. Yeah. So this conversation gives us a little bit more world building. People do not have sexual reproduction anymore. Mm. So where do people come from? Uh, Do they just never age? Are they immortal? Are Are they grown? And uh, I guess it's common knowledge because when Mitsuru monologues on that, it's no surprise. What was interesting to me, like Kokoro asks, why do you think we stopped having babies? It's like, isn't it just a natural thing? And then it got me thinking about like, oh, is this what this is about? Is this about what's natural versus what's imposed upon us? Mm. Mitsuru seems like he's still pretty well indoctrinated. He's like, We don't do it because we don't have to. We don't need to. I mean, it's an interesting conversation to be having for this episode. I mean, because last episode, it was all kind of about love, intimate relationships where people are having sex. That's the thing that's gone. And now this episode seems to be about rethinking that. Like, okay, it's still here, but it's forced into one mold. Hmm. Um, And maybe it's intimacy itself that is gone. And like sex is a very intimate experience. And so that was probably one of the first things to go within the immortal adult system now. But they live completely parallel lives, as we saw in that last episode. There's no intimacy at all between the two of them. uh, Mitsuru says something uh, pretty hard. He's like, we don't need others to live. I think what he meant is we don't need others to survive. I just think that relationships are just a really important part of our life experience and growth. Sure. Then there's a little bit of a dispute is like, is her interest uh, only that he, I mean, uh, that she pities him. And I suspect, I think I know that what Kokoro is going to say, but she gets cut off by the alarm. Hey, listen, Mitsuru, you should. (sighs) And it's probably good because uh, sometimes the big statement has, has to be earned. Uh, sometimes a truth discovered is better received than a truth revealed. Uh, we do need to go backwards, though, because our little scene there has some real good meat there that we have to look at prior to the greenhouse. You know, Futoshi is just expressive. He expresses all kinds of shit. And this time it's rage, rage against Zorame. Then Mitsuru walks in, rages against Mitsuru, tries to punch him. Hiro comes in, has his talk with Mitsuru. And he says to Mitsuru, try to understand, which is the wrong thing to say to Mitsuru because Hiro does not understand. And he is, as you would expect, very upset about that. What gives you the right to say that? Um, Hiro still doesn't get it. These guys really need to compare notes. Like someone just needs to say, so like, why are you so mad? You don't know? No, I don't. Here's why. Oh, that could have been cleared up, but then we wouldn't have a show. And then, then we get this little kind of endearing moment, you know, uh, Futoshi's on the ground crying. And this is kind of just a pretty honest thing. He's talking about these feelings that he doesn't, he doesn't know what the feelings are. He doesn't have the words for them. Like he had these, this tight feeling in his chest when he thought about Kokoro. And now it's still the same feeling, but, but it now it hurts. 
And uh, you know what? I can relate to that. I remember my first crush in middle school. I didn't love her. I thought I did, but I didn't. But I f- remember like when it didn't work out, feeling like I couldn't breathe. You know, like it was butterflies, but the bad butterflies. Because she did say yes when I first asked her out. You got coke rude, dude. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't know what he did wrong either. The thing is he didn't do anything wrong. And I don't know. I guess maybe we'll get to it about like, I, I'm still, I sort of, okay, full of confession, still kind of waiting for like why polyamory was something you all wanted to talk about with this episode because it doesn't happen. They just go into different monogamous partnerships. But this is maybe one of those moments like Futoshi didn't do anything wrong. Kokoro just wanted, she doesn't not like him or maybe she doesn't even not love him, but she wants, you know, there's somebody else that she wants to get to know on a deeper intimate level. And like, I think that's the saddest part is like, he's like, what did I do? And it's nothing. The answer is nothing. You did nothing wrong, bud. So let's talk about polyamory. Okay. So right after the greenhouse scene, uh, they're back at the hangars. And Kokoro and Mitsuru are getting in the Franks to pilot together for the first time. Right next to them is Ikuno and Futoshi. And Futoshi's yelling his stuff about, you know, you better promise. And, you know, Mitsuru's like, what? And Kokoro takes res- uh, responsibility for Futoshi's feelings. So she still cares about him. They're not piling it together. But, like, this is what, like, really jumped out at me. Kokoro didn't leave Futoshi because she hates him. Or is just done with him. She likes Mitsuru. She has this empathy for him. It's like, but they're in a system that's structured for just one format. Do you ever feel like life is like that? <laughs> Do you ever feel like there's just this default thing that we're supposed to fit into? Mm-hmm. And what if you like two people? Is that bad? Are you a bad person because you love more than one person? Am I a bad father because I love both my kids? Uh, all right, I want to. I want to get to spoilers. Do we get? Do we get Frank's made for polycules? Do we get a <laughs> three person, four person Frank? Yeah, yeah, we do. No, <laughs> uh, I could. I could challenge that. There's a certain group called the Nines that have a strange arrangement. I shouldn't say yes. strange. That sounds negative. It's an interesting arrangement. Different it's arrangement. Un- it's unique. Yeah, but. No, I don't think you're a bad father. And I don't think you're strange for liking two people. But is that, so this is something I've always been curious about polyamory. And I guess I should have uh, uh, looked this up, but maybe you can answer it. Um, So polyamory, does that specifically mean emotional connections with more than one person? Or does it also encompass just multiple sexual partners? Or what exactly does it mean? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a lot of words that people use and sometimes interchangeably, but they aren't necessarily interchangeable. If you look at like the two roots of polyamory, poly meaning many, amory meaning love. So When I use that word and when I encounter that word, what I expect for it to mean is multiple deep relationships, love relationships. And so like I consider myself polyamorous. I have two boyfriends that I love very much. We are not in a polycule. The two of them do not date each other. So that's the word I use to describe my situation. But Mm -hmm. there's also the like open relationships has been used. I think that's kind of going out of vogue because it's like 
you know, that typically describes like one committed relationship then that then says you can have like casual relationships outside of that primary relationship is how I've seen it used. But um, yeah, I think the word that people are starting to use is like ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. And that one, I think it's a lot more open to interpretation. So I think, you know, that typically is, you know, either a single person who dates lots of people and that's, you know, could, can be like committed relationships or casual, but long-term relationships or like hookups. Mm -hmm. But um, the ethical part of it being that everybody involved knows what the deal is. (laughs) Right. That communication thing. Yeah. I'm also, I wouldn't say like the expert in the terminology sometimes, like like any sort of subgroup, they have there's like this whole language and these cutesy little things that people say. And I don't like necessarily use all of that language myself. But that's yeah, that's I guess how I would differentiate those different types of relationships. So like ethical or consensual non-monogamy is more of a blanket term. And then polyamory is more specified to having more than one or having more than two people in uh, uh, are involved in deep emotional relationships. Yeah. Um, and so like for yourself, like your two partners, uh, they're not partnered with each other, but they are equal to you. There isn't like one casual and one serious. Exactly. Yeah. And they're, they're different. So like I live with mm-hmm. one of those partners, which was never on the table with the other partner. That doesn't mean I love him less. It's just a different kind of relationship mm-hmm. where like living together was like not something we would have considered, but you know, we see each other regularly. We love each other very much. We care about each other, that kind of thing. So yeah, so they're different. And if I were to project into the future, like those trajectories are going to look very different from each other, but I wouldn't say I like prioritize one relationship over the other. Um, Although some people do, and there's like different types of arrangements, even within polyamory, right? Sort of hierarchical is how people will refer to it. And typically that's like, I have a primary partner. Oftentimes that's a spouse. Mm. And I have found a lot of people that I've seen typically fall into that category when they start out in a monogamous relationship and then open it after the fact. And then the other type of arrangement is is called like relationship anarchy is how people have referred to it, where your relationship with one person won't inform your relationships with other people. Um, And so you're not prioritizing one over the others. You're not making decisions about one based on the others in any significant way. And I find more people who sort of came to their existing relationships as a poly person or as somebody interested in non-monogamy tends to go that way. Mm -hmm. And that's how I, like, I came into both of my relationships, like seeking non-monogamy, knowing that was what I preferred. Um, So like, do you think of yourself as being a part of a polyamorous community? Um, Personally, like, no, I don't really, there is polyamorous communities around. I don't engage with those communities. It's, it's sort of interesting. I, I just don't get a lot of my, like, I, I don't identify myself. Like if somebody's like, tell me about yourself, like mm-hmm. the fact that I have two boyfriends is not a very interesting thing about me that I think, like, I don't think that's a very interesting thing about me. It probably wouldn't mm-hmm. come up. I don't derive very much of my identity from that. Right. Other things are more important to who I am as a person. Well said. <laughs> 
Um, thank you. <laughs> um, and so there are like poly meetup groups and that kind of thing. But I, I found that the people who go to those do draw a lot of their um, identity from that part yeah. of themselves. And I kind of get bored of the conversation pretty quickly. Um, and so I haven't engaged in the um, communities. I more consider myself like part of this, I guess, like subpopulation that I have things in common with other people who, who live this way. But I, like I've gone out with poly dudes before and I'm like, Ugh, all you wanted to do is talk about polyamory. <laughs> so I think this is relevant to what we're talking about. I, I have a question about communication in language. Like, so our characters, they don't have a vocabulary that they desperately need. So how do you go from point A to point B, like point B where you are, the polyamorous relationships? Like, how do you have that conversation? Because it could be a potentially thorny conversation, depending on who you're talking to. Oh, it is. So <laughs> I guess, what's your path? No, that's a great question. And I do think this is relevant. So the, the moment I realized I preferred polyamory, I had started dating this guy and um, he was like really interested in being in like a, a serious relationship with me pretty quickly. And I you know, I was like, eh, you're fine. Like, yeah, we're having a good time. I like you a lot. And um, I hope he never hears this. <laughs> and um, Literally like date number three, he was like, why don't we just like slap a label on this, call it what it is. And I was like, why don't we just like keep doing what we're doing? And like, why do we need to put a label on it? It's fine. We're having fun. Um, so we pushed it off a little bit, two days in a row. He asks me like, as we're falling asleep, he's like, will you be my girlfriend? And the first night I'm like, basically asleep. I'm like, sure. <laughs> and fell asleep. Uh, you Kokoro. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next night I'm falling asleep again. You know, he's like, yesterday when you said you'd be my girlfriend, did you mean it? And I'm like, sure. And the next day, our relationship completely changed. Like when I said I would take on this, like, label, which didn't bother me. I was like, fine, I'll be your girlfriend. I don't know, whatever. To him, everything changed. And suddenly there was this like host of expectations for what our relationship was that we never discussed. And, you know, even before dating him, I had preferred like less monogamous situations. They had just worked for me. And um, we were at this party and most of my friends where we were living um, were also non-monogamous. It was a very small town. The dating pool is pretty small. So like non-monogamy sort of worked for the people Mm. that were in my age range. So we were at a party and a buddy of mine came up um, to me and he was like, hey, like you and I kind of flirt a lot. Anyway, I, I just was curious if that was ever going to lead any into anything like, you know, is the flirting going to become more than that? And I just wanted you to know that if it does, cool, I'm totally down for that. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, I'd never thought about it, but let me get back to you. And first of all, that was like the most direct and like straightforward, awesome conversation I felt like I'd ever had about wow. like potential. So like, he was like, hey, I'm down. And if you're not, that's no big deal. But I just wanted to like put it out there that if you are, so am I. Cool. And my now boyfriend uh, or that, you know, this good guy who had just recently become my boyfriend kind of turned to me. And he was like, are you kidding me? And I was like, what? He was like, I'm sitting <laughs> right here. 
that guy came over and like asked you to sleep with him. And I'm right here. Doesn't he know that we're together? And I was like, yeah, well, his girlfriend's like right over there. Like it's not, you know, a big deal. And it's not like I, I I didn't like promise him anything. We just had a conversation and he was like, that's not okay. And I was like, oh, actually what's not okay is all of the assumptions that are operating right here that you never clued me into. And at that Mm. moment I was like, oh, that's why I don't like monogamous relationships because nothing gets discussed. It's all assumed what the expectations are. And so the minute I started pursuing polyamorous relationships, non-monogamous relationships, you have to be upfront about what you're looking for. You're saying, cause the, the assumption is that it's monogamous unless it's kind of like otherwise specified. So, so you feel like you have the burden to, to be upfront about it in a non-monogamous relationship or well, I think, maybe I misunderstood. I think, um, so as someone who likes non-monogamous relationships, I also pursue other people who like non-monogamous relationships, but again, because there's so many different ways that that shakes out, you have to be upfront. Like I'm looking for just a casual thing or like, I'm looking for just, you know, a, a more, like I'm hoping to develop like long-term relationships or deep relationships where you would use the L word, like that kind of thing. And so because, because you're not starting from the, like, yeah, this will, you know, ideally become just you and me. And there's like this whole culture of monogamous expectations of like what that means and what is cheating, like all of those things sort of like fall into, you know, a monogamous relationship. And because it's the baseline, everyone's like, well, we don't have to say what the rules are because it's the baseline. We all know what the rules are. And in non-monogamous situations, the rules aren't clear. And so you have to set them. And that's so awesome. <laughs> because, yeah, you know, like From the beginning, oh, we are looking for similar things. This is worth my time. Or like, oh, you just want like a sex friend and I want a boyfriend. Those are two different things. This is probably not going to work between us. And we don't have to waste our time mm. like pursuing it. Because like we we already know we don't want the same things. Yeah. And the bullshit just like goes away. It took practice to like tell somebody that like I just met that I'm like, yeah, I want to get married one day. <laughs> I'm not saying it's to you, but I, I want mm-hmm. to get married one day. Like, yes, I want to do that. And to find someone who's like, cool. Like, yeah, I want to get married one day too. Maybe to you, maybe not to you. I don't know. We're on a first date. Like, who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, that's scary. And so I think it takes practice, which I, you know, bringing it back to the show, you know, I think that's why they're so bad at it because they don't have any practice because they're children. (laughs) And, you know, so it's frustrating to see them like trying to have these like adult type relationships, but with the brain of a child who like does not know how to be honest or like put themselves out there and like deal with it. If someone's like, "Mm, not what I'm into that, like, that's the end of the world. And it's like, I'll never be honest again. It's like, well, okay. Or like the adult way is like, it had nothing to do with you. It's just like incompatible wants. You didn't do anything wrong. You just wanted what you wanted and they wanted what they wanted. And that's okay that they were different things. Yeah. But it takes practice getting from, I guess, yeah, from the baseline of monogamy to opening up towards non-monogamy um, and practicing the kind of communication that that requires. Yeah. I also like to say I made every mistake possible, like in <laughs> non-monogamous relationships, like 
I got to two healthy relationships because I messed up so many other relationships. That's right. You are Kokoro. <laughs> <laughs> so like this is her message, right? Yeah. We're not perfect. We're yeah. going to make mistakes. If you want to have a relationship, your only option is with an imperfect person. And then that's the decision you have to make. You have to choose fear or relationship, I guess. Right. That doesn't sound very poetic. Uh, <laughs> well, you have to be the fool sometime. You have to make that leap of faith. And sometimes that leap of faith is going to end up poorly, but eventually you will get it right. Even if it's just a, a system of trial and error, you know, learning from your own mistakes. Exactly. The key is like, yeah, people are going to make mistakes and to mm -hmm. not take that personally mm. and to not put that on, like that person isn't bad because they made a mistake and you aren't bad because they made a mistake. And I think that's, that's kind of the downfall for both the characters who are let down, um, Futoshi and Mitsuro, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and both of them are like, this is what I want both like they're let down and then they're like, I did something wrong or I'm going to respond by never opening up again. Or at least that's how Mitsuru and I guess we'll see how Futoshi deals with it. You'll see, I probably won't keep watching the show, honestly, but um, <laughs> like Hero's not bad for going back on his promise. It sucks, but he probably shouldn't have made the promise in the first place. It's that damn forever promise. I know, but like it, he isn't a bad person for making a mistake and Mitsuro shouldn't hold it against him like for his whole life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it just, you know, that's a lot for him to carry for that long. Yeah. And the only person he's punishing is himself. It's yeah. not like he's punishing hero for hero breaking his heart. Right. Hero has no idea. Yeah. Hero's living his fucking life. <laughs> he's like, whatever. I've got this like hot pink haired lady. Over here. <laughs> <laughs> And, and kind of going, going back to the idea that we've talked about on some previous episodes about this series being about, in some ways, like arranged marriage versus love marriage and the way society creates the rules around all this stuff, right? For a long time, we did sort of at least officially believe in these forever promises, right? And you could only ever get married once. And, you know, maybe people, for all of history, people have had affairs and you know, various unofficial living arrangements and stuff like that. But but then as a society, we've even kind of backtracked and been like, well, you can still make these forever promises, but, uh, you know, like both people should be able to opt out at at any point. Right. And it's um, well, it's back to that. Like, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, or you can make a forever promise with someone and go pursue other things that make you happy. Um, mm. That doesn't mean you can't still have your forever not in the eyes of the state Holly <laughs> 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 people can't marry more than one person still you know mm -hmm. that's the next thing in um marriage equality maybe <laughs> yeah all right well I feel like we've successfully covered the the meat of our episode well, I do have a kind of random uh, polyamory question while we have you here. Yeah. Would, would you say you like you personally identify as like 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 that there are polyamorous people and monogamous people or do you see it more as like choices individuals make and like, mm -hmm. you know, it's a relationship to relationship kind of setup? I would say I don't think 
a preference for monogamy or non-monogamy is like as written in somebody as like, say their sexual preferences, you know, or their, like their gender identity, which all, both of those things can, you know, be shifting as somebody like learns more about themselves. You know, like, I don't think somebody like pops out of the womb, like a polyamorous inclined person or not. Um, (laughs) I do think depending on your personality, like, or your preferences, like I do think there are people for whom monogamy works better and people for whom non-monogamy works better. I don't think that there's a value on that, but I do think that, um, I think that people will tend to find that one or the other works better. I would say that probably non-monogamy works for more people than who would admit that that's the case. I think because again, the, the, the baseline is monogamy. I would say it's much more of a preference than like who you're attracted to, Mm -hmm. which I don't think, you know, I think that's very much, you know, how you were written, like, you know, like as, as a human, like this, you know, who, who you uh, are attracted to is kind of, um, you don't have a lot of control over that, Mm -hmm. but how you decide to arrange your relationships I think is much more based around a preference than like an innate need. So what would be your advice to someone who's like feeling that pressure of the monoculture? Yeah, I would say the advice is you aren't a bad person for um, developing feelings for more than one person at the same time. I would say if you find yourself in a monogamous relationship and you have developed feelings for another person, you aren't bad. That doesn't make you a bad person. And that doesn't mean your partner isn't a good partner to you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it means that there is a conversation that needs to be had. And that's probably going to feel very uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but that you're only going to be dissatisfied if you don't try to have that conversation and to try to like live your most authentic self. Like Mitsuru closing himself off. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I wonder how he would feel if he just had a conversation with Hiro, even if Hiro was like, Hey man, I'm, I like you, but not that way. Like I bet he would feel just like a million times better because at least it's like not building up inside of him anymore. And I think, I think we all know that like, the more something festers inside of you, the uglier it becomes. And Mm. so you should talk about it. And like, yeah, it's probably going to feel very uncomfortable because that's, it's really hard to look at someone you love and say like, I do love you. And also I'm maybe also interested in another person or another people or, you know, or like exploring outside of this, like, but that doesn't mean I don't love you. Like that's, that's the hard thing. And I think, so if you find yourself wanting to do that, Hell yeah, do it. Polyamory is great. But you do it well. Be be prepared to blow up your relationship. (laughs) It might blow up your relationship, but that's really what you want. Right. It's it's easier if you've had that conversation from the start of a relationship than probably. But you know, your partner might also be feeling that way too. You never know. This is very accurate. I firmly (laughs) believe the monoculture is unnatural. Yeah. I mean, I think. Attraction and attachment is natural. And I think formatting it is the culture, right? Yeah. Can I tell my last thought that finally came back into my head? Yeah. Okay. I'm so sorry. So monogamous relationships and forever promises are classist. 
because people with resources have the privacy and time mm. to pursue those extramarital affairs or homosexual relationships or whatever that's not deemed okay in the public eye mm. uh, without losing. Like if you're rich, you can have an affair with someone that you're really into for years and not get rid of your actual uh, legal like the public relationship what is this the, priv- the privilege to buy motel rooms what are you <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> not sure i followed okay um yeah 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 like if you're poor then you're more visible to your neighborhood you know if you live in an apartment complex and you bring a stranger home or you bring someone back to your apartment complex you don't know how many people see you but if you live on an estate and you can go pick someone up in an undisclosed location and drive them back to a completely private residence, you are more free to uh, engage in these kinds of relationships than someone who is uh, doesn't have those resources. That's so true. There's this thing um, that people refer to in, you know, in the poly community that's it's called um, couples privilege, mm. um, which is exactly that, that, you know, it's sort of the same as like a bi person in a heterosexual relationship. They have straight privilege. Like they pass for what is the norm, like the baseline. So like I live with one of my partners and I have total couples privilege with him. We are like very public in our relationship. We live together, like, you know, and I'm not like out as Polly with like everyone in my life. And I can sort of play like I'm not that, you know, that that isn't how my life is because I have this couple's privilege. But I think to your point, like that isn't always the case. Like my partner used to live in an apartment complex. And when I would come over some days and his other partner would come over other days and his neighbors were like, do they know? Like, should we tell them? We're like, no, we like, yeah, we know we've met, like we know, <laughs> but like the part, the, the neighbors kind of forced him to like come out about like what his situation was. And yeah, because he didn't have the privacy to um, kind of do as he wanted. Hell yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Is everybody set? Yeah. Pen. Pen. Pal. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was fun. talk about or uh should i just end the call for all of us no man i did research on bears oh right the bear man. okay we're gonna do the bears okay cut me off of my bear talk sorry uh lots of bear talk. yeah emily if you need to get going um no i'm cool. not invested i want to hear about okay bears. all right <laughs> oh okay awesome this is kind of weird it's, it's bear time it's our new segment on the show <laughs> bear time so, uh, so doing research for the show, all the other episodes, these monsters, Monster of the Week, it seemed like it symbolized something. And I was really scratching my head over this one. You know, it's like the square blue thing with four legs and it's like this table. But then I saw the images of the way things walked and the shape. I was like, oh, it looks like a bear. It's very bear-like. And I was like, I think in the West, you know, bears look like symbolize power or something. I was like, well, this is coming from a a Japanese culture, maybe there's, maybe we can do better than that. So I started digging into that and it turns out like the bear is kind of a meaningful symbol in Japan, but it's pretty complicated uh, because it 
uh, means different things to like say indigenous Japanese or the Japanese who come from Chinese and Korean uh, descent. What we think of as like, you know, modern classical Japanese people, the bear's kind of like got some negative connotations. It's associated with uh, the Russian empire, like under Nicholas II. And it was kind of this oppressive thing. So like, if you can think back to Nicholas II time, this is when world leaders had industrial revolution fever and were just all about unbridled expansion. And uh, Russia was trying to extend the transatlantic railroad and get access to the sea of japan it was all stuff that would just be very convenient for them for trade but for the japanese uh it presented like a threat to their existence because there's this thing that's just moving further and further eastward with like incredible momentum and you know like manchuria is about to be absorbed so that's uh some tension <laughs> and um there was a short window of time like a lot of people don't know this, like Japan and Russia actually went to war, the Japan-Russo war, and they won, they beat Russia. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a short window of time when there was a chance for diplomacy where they could communicate. Unfortunately, uh, one of the two guards that the Japanese emperor assigned to Nicholas II, when he came to Japan to visit, tried to assassinate him and very nearly came close, gave him a nine centimeter scar down his face and almost slit his throat Uh, So that trip ended very quickly. And um, the Japanese emperor thought like, oh, shit, this is exactly the excuse they need to declare war and then continue the eastern expansion to claim the Sea of Japan. Uh, So like we need to do some uh, display of like an apology, something very public that shows that uh, we're very sorry we tried to kill you. to make it all better so i guess someone had the great idea of like well we'll just have someone commit suicide Uh, so i had this young woman go in front of the russian embassy and she slit her throat and died and uh this had kind of a a bad effect it's like so nicholas ii didn't understand what that meant it was just freaky and weird to him but to the japanese people uh it was horrifying because uh the woman she was part of the labor she was this working class person from a local factory and obviously she was manipulated in one way or another that she had to do this thing. And it outraged the people and they were like, fuck Russia. And then like Japan's military is not like Western military. They're not unified under one commander in chief. There's charismatic generals that each control their own faction. And they all started going like, fuck Russia. Let's go back there. Let's take the Manchurian Peninsula. Let's do all this shit. Anyway, the bear is not <laughs> like it. It means a lot of things uh, to like modern Japanese that isn't great. But then when I looked at the indigenous tradition about how they see the bear, it's very different. Uh, so to them, the bear, the kuma, no, no, I'm sorry. The kuma is the Japanese word for bear. Kamui, the bear is like one of their pantheon of gods, but this is not at all like anything that we understand in the West, right? This isn't like Judeo-Christian gods that like we revere. This isn't like the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods that we revere in their own ways. When you come across uh, the Kamui, the bear, you kill it. (laughs) You kill God (laughs) because when you kill God, all these great things happen. So like the gods, the ancients, uh, they're part of the old world, the old order. And humans on earth are part of a new thing. Uh, So when we 
kill the bear, we have this thing called a pelt that allows us to survive a hard winter where before we couldn't. And now we've got these big bones that could be made into weapons and tools where before we didn't have those kind of things. It was really weird reading about this because it's so different from like, say, Native American spiritual beliefs, like where all this life is sacred. And that's where I thought it was going. Like, oh, it's more sacred because it's God. It's one of the gods. Like, but there's no apology to the deer when you kill it because it's going to feed the family and be a part of the cycle of life. It's just like, it's <laughs> we're going to kill God. <laughs> it's just a happy thing because we're sending it back to the higher realm where it's supposed to be. So anyway, I thought about how that might fit into our show. And I was like, okay, so like the monoculture, maybe it's the old ways. And if we kill it, maybe a lot of great things can come out of that. <laughs> it sounds so brutal to put it that way. Yeah, it's awesome. I also discovered that there used to be apes in Japan, but they're extinct now because the Ainu killed mm. them all. <laughs> but, oh. you know, the ape was another one of these gods, but it was um, more special than any other of their gods, than bears or the river spirit or whatever. Maybe it's because it looked more humanoid, uh, but it was the sort of priest god. So if you're an Ainu and you want to pray, you can't pray because you're just talking to yourself. It means nothing. Like if you want to pray, the ape Kamui has to be the intercessor that delivers your thoughts and feelings to the higher realm. And these, these were like big, they were like Bigfoot things. They looked sort of like an orangutan, but they're a little more upright. Like the ape monster from uh, Big Trouble in Little China? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>